This is Valley Views, our weekly conversation with influential and interesting folks from around the Wet Mountain Valley. Today on Valley Views, we're visiting with Michelle Howard, retired Navy Admiral and Valley resident, actually lives in Cotopaxi. Michelle, welcome to the program. Good morning, Gary. Let me just ask, you are a retired Navy Admiral. When I think of locations one might retire to from the Navy, I have to think of San Diego or maybe San Francisco, but the Wet Mountain Valley, you couldn't be farther from the shore. What's the story? Well, I I think... um the Norwegian uh, Nordic cultures have it correct. They talk about when the Vikings retired from the sea, they would put an oar on their shoulder and they would keep walking inland. And finally they would come across a group of people who said, what is that? (laughs) And the Viking would retire there. Now that's a good story. When did you first start to think of a military career? Oh, I was 12. I saw a documentary it was probably about the Air Force Academy, and I was just enthralled with the teamwork, the leadership opportunities, the uniforms, and I was so excited I didn't even notice it was all guys. <laughs> and I went to talk to my older brother, and he said, nope, you can't go to a service academy. They're closed to women. It's the law. And I was in shock, but he, I went to my mom, and she said, oh, he's telling you the truth. Women can't go to service academies. And she said, but, you know, wait. She goes, you're only 12. You could change your mind. But if you don't, I would encourage you to apply when you're old enough. And then if they reject you because you're a woman, we'll sue the government. (laughs) So during the course of your career, there must have been challenges and hurdles. What were a couple that come to mind? Well, I think um, just at the very beginning. So... Uh, The law changed about service academies in 76. I applied when I was 17 and started in 78. And there was a lot of social upheaval, I would say, during that time frame about the role of women, whether it was in police forces, firefighting. I mean, we didn't even have a woman on the Supreme Court at that point. There was no Sally Ride, the astronaut. So uh, when I started Annapolis, there were some... Angry, angry men's probably the way to put it. And so they were creating challenges and barriers for the, those first groups of women who uh, started. What's some of the best advice you got when you were starting out or when you were early in your career? Actually, it was the same conversation with my mother. When she talked about, look, if we have to, we'll sue the government, she made a big point about it can take a long time for a lawsuit to get to the Supreme Court. You could be too old to go, even if the Supreme Court agrees with you, but other women will get to go if they agree with you and open up the service academies. So the lesson in that was you have to do what you think is right, and you have to do it regardless of whether or not you think you're going to benefit, because it might benefit the community. It looked like it's worked out well for you. Well, you know, she, she instilled a good thought in me, do what's right and be persistent. You retired from the Navy with the rank of Admiral, and I noticed that there are 271 four-star admirals in the history, and that started back in the Civil War. For those not familiar, can you give us a sense of three-star, four-star, there's been a few five-star, and how they fit with Admiral, Vice Admiral, etc.? 
a rear admiral lower half is the equivalent to a brigadier general in the army or air force and then really the rank after uh, to certain levels is based on the scope uh, of your responsibility and your role so when you for the navy when you're talking one star you're talking a task force level commander dozen or so ships and other assets two star can be a carrier strike group commander and then a three star is a fleet commander for us you could be in control of assets that are that are basically a quarter of the navy four star is a theater level commander so as a four star i was uh, naval forces europe in africa so my area of responsibility went all the way from the arctic down to south africa Mm-hmm. And and that included the Med, but it also included land facilities, ballistic missile defense command in uh, Romania. Uh, so it's the size and scope of what you're responsible for. So, for example, as a one star, I was a group commander. I had eleven ships, uh, a CB battalion, and so it was about eleven thousand people. Wow. So the rank of admiral has quite the storied history. Just, for example, in the World War II era, Kimmel, King, Nimitz, Ingersoll, Halsey, Spruance, those are names right out of the history book for the Pacific Theater. So this is a rarefied air where you are. So the scope of the theaters, when you think about the Pacific and someone like Nimitz, the scope of the theater is just uh, incredible. And today... The equivalent would be, I think, a combatant commander, a very senior four-star who has the same size theater as Nimitz had in World War II. In 1997, Joseph Reason became the first African-American admiral. You achieved that rank in 2014, and you were the first woman to achieve that rank. Is that correct? Yes. So uh, something to put in historical context— After World War II, Congress made a decision to allow women to serve in the active force. They'd been serving as reserves up until World War II. But then they put a cap on the percentage of women who could serve, 2% of the military force. In the law, they said women could not be admirals or generals. And that law was not repealed until 1967. Mm. So for the Navy, the first woman admiral wasn't until 1972, the head of the nurse corps. So by the time I'm starting Annapolis, there has been one sort of general unrestricted line, women admiral appointed. We were constrained by law in in order to be able to reach that rank. And then the combat exclusion law was in place until I was a mid-grade commander. So then women couldn't serve on combatant ships until I was a lieutenant commander. And if you can't serve in the primary mission of an organization then the opportunities to reach a senior rank aren't there. So I, you know, I always said my parents were smart. If I had been born two years earlier, <laughs> I would have missed You would have missed it. Missed all the changes in the law and not been able to grow up to be an admiral. Timing is everything. Timing in, is in everything in life. Let me ask you a little bit about shipboard life. Uh, I found a quote when Winston Churchill, who's not a sailor, was on the uh, HMS Duke of York in 41. In the stormy North Atlantic, he was heading across the ocean to visit with FDR. He was quoted as saying, being on a ship in such weather is just like being in prison with the extra chance that you might be drowned. And I found that uh, quite <laughs> quite humorous, actually. Uh, what was shipboard like, f- like for you when you were captaining a vessel? Command is a privilege. You have 
sailors and officers from across the country. And these are the sons and daughters of the small towns and cities in America. And you are responsible for their life. You're responsible for training them for them to, for us for the ship to be successful as a team. And then you're responsible for any other passengers who might not necessarily be underneath your command. So like I was on ships where we had embarked Marines. They have their own command structure. But once you go to sea, they're all yours. So in the very most fundamental responsibility is the safe navigation of the ship. So even when you're not in war, just getting from A to B takes uh, concentration, a a well-trained crew, and focus. And then if you're going to go into conflict, you have to make sure your crew is trained. And then, I mean, as a leader, you want to make sure every individual sailor is successful at what they do. The challenge is it's not like a, a job where it's nine to five. It's, it's 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly when you're underway, you've got your teams on the bridge. And if they're, they're unsure about something, they, they wake you up. You go to the bridge and you help give guidance and keep the ship safe. My father was in the Pacific during the war and had some souvenirs. I was looking at a menu from a Christmas dinner, which I have right here. And for dinner, they had roast tom turkey, Virginia ham with all the trimmings, followed by apple pie and finally coffee, cigars, and cigarettes. What was the typical dining experience during a normal day on one of your ships? Well, if you have a large ship, you're normally running four meals a day so that folks who have the night watch, you know, their breakfast might be at midnight. And one thing all the services agree to, and I, and I had a World War, veteran, World War II veteran remind me, Navy's always had the best chow. So, <laughs> the, you know, when you're at sea for weeks at a time, there is nothing that makes your day like a good hot, hot cup of coffee or a, a really wonderful meal if you're coming off your watch or you're getting ready to uh, go do maintenance work. And I've always said, if you don't believe we have the best uh, chefs in the Navy, look at who runs the White House kitchen facilities. It's all, it's all Navy sailors, and the same at Camp David. It's all Navy sailors who uh, do the cooking. I remember even on the Great Lakes, they went to some lengths to pull off good meals, especially on holidays, etc. Yes. Now, you were named as part of the Biden transition team. What was the nature of that? So it's actually governed by law. At the at once in the U.S. political system, once you get down to basically one candidate for the party that's you know not in office, then in order to make sure there's a continuity of national security, they can create a transition team, and they can start that actually fairly early, July and August is normally the start time. And then that allows them to start focusing on the context and assessing where the federal, where the different federal agencies are. And then once you get past the election, they can stand up a full transition team. And I was on the defense side. Uh, And then they literally, each of the individuals, there's like 76 federal agencies. Each of the teams goes in and assesses where the different agencies are in terms of policies and then creates a recommendations uh, that go up to the leadership of the transition team. And then what that does is it allows 
the incoming administration to understand and be fully read up on intelligence reports, functioning of agencies, how the agencies are working together, mostly with a focus on national security. Mm -hmm. Congress decided decades ago it just did not make sense to have a shift in administrations and have a new president and vice president and team and try and jumpstart the level of knowledge you need, particularly in the international arena. And so the functioning of the team is governed by law. Those transitions are critical, of course. Now, Michelle, you were credited with planning the rescue of Captain Richard Phillips from Somali pirates in 2009. The capture of the U.S.-flagged Maersk, Alabama, was the first pirate capture of an American ship since 1822. So that was the big thing. What were the biggest challenges in planning such a maneuver? Well, our biggest challenge was, one, trying to buy time to allow for the special forces to get out there. So I'm what would be, would be called conventional service, traditional type service. And the special forces are the groups that train for hostage rescue. And you don't always have those folks with you. So the first thing we had to do was buy time to allow them to get out there to execute the final part of the mission. Uh, the second thing was really trying to get an understanding of how we were going to set this up. I don't know if folks remember the, I think it was 72, the Achilles Laurel, where a U.S. Mm-hmm. citizen was taken hostage by terrorists and unfortunately, I think, eventually killed. After that, uh, not just the U.S., but several countries said, we need to be able to look at what happens if terrorists take a cruise ship in the future. Well, the way we train was always this thought the next time it happened, it would be a cruise ship or a large ship. The surprise for us is Captain Phillips is in an enclosed life raft. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no visibility of him. And there really is no way to, if you're thinking about the scope of the size of a cruise ship, there's different ways to get on board. You could rappel onto it. You can climb up the side, which is how the pirates would get on the cruise ships. They just climb up the sides with ladders. But there's no way to really get inside a life raft without uh, pressurizing the pirates and then um, probably jeopardizing Captain Phillips' life. And the outcome of that was uh, all of the crew members from the Alabama were safe at the end, as I recall? Captain Phillips, when you think about, my goodness, the leadership in public service attitude, uh, just he argued and got the pirates to take him on board the life raft mm-hmm. and the, the and get away re- from the ship. And the the, the rest of the crew stayed on board the Maersk. So he basically was willing to sacrifice himself to let the rest of the crew be safe. I remember the story. It's nice to hear it from the uh, other side, someone who was in on the planning of it. As we run short of time here, how much more diverse is the Navy today compared to when you started? So the biggest change is gender. So as I mentioned, after World War II, the percentage of women was capped at 2%. And then around the time of the all-volunteer force, the caps came off. So with recruiting for going after now both men and women, we're talking about when I started, the Navy was about 5% women. And then when I retired, it was about 20% women. So out of about 326,000 sailors and officers, 55,000 were women. And then for other categories of diversity, probably since the 70s, 
uh, the Navy broadly, uh, particularly in the sailors, uh, basically reflects the demographics of America. Mm-hmm. One last question as, as we leave. You are retired, but you seem to keep getting involved with things. I understand you're part of the group that's looking at the renaming of the Confederate bases and names at the federal level. Uh, a few weeks ago, the Secretary of Defense called and asked if I would be one of the four Department of Defense appointees to the Legislative Commission that's going to, we're going to look at identifying all the DOD assets that were named after individuals who voluntarily served with the Confederacy and then work through a plan to rename all of those assets. So there's four appointees from Department of Defense and four appointees from Congress. And it's a two-year, it, it, when you think about identifying every building, every road, every portrait. It's not just the bases. Every ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, it's, a two-year, it's a two-year commission. Michelle, thanks for stopping by and filling us in on, uh, on the Navy. And on current things going on in government. You exactly. betcha, Gary. Exactly. We've been visiting with Michelle Howard, retired four-star admiral and Valley resident. My name's Gary, and we'll see you next time on Valley Views. You've been listening to Valley Views on KLZR 91.7 FM. Valley Views airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 a.m. and 4 p.m., and again on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Send your ideas and comments to comments at klzr.org. Valley Views is produced by the volunteers of KLZR 91.7 FM. I'm walking on a rainbow with my feet on solid ground. 